spending the first four chapters of his letter to the problem of factions within the Corinthian church. In chapter 5, the Apostle Paul turns his attention to uh, an issue in that church that uh, similar to the problem of factions. It was an issue that was born out of worldly thinking, and it was accompanied by an attitude of arrogance. You know, that issue in chapter 5 revolved around a man guilty of committing blatant sin. He was a man who was living in an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother, which of course is a form of incest. And it was a sin so repulsive that uh, we read that even the pagan unbelievers uh, would not engage in that sin. But there was another aspect of this situation in Corinth that was even more shocking, that not only were the members of the church fully aware of what was going on in their midst, and the, the word of this sinful relationship had spread throughout the church and it had spread uh, throughout the region. And yet, rather than feeling great anguish and addressing this issue through the application of church discipline as they had been taught, the church was actually boasting in this sinful relationship that was in their midst. They were boasting about their permissive views. But the Bible is clear that the purity of the church matters to God and it must be uh, pursued and it must be protected. And so Paul rebuked the Corinthians for their worldly thinking, admonishing them to deal with this situation by taking this man out of the church, casting him out of the church. Well, what was the fundamental issue behind the lack of unity in the church at Corinth and their lack of concern regarding moral purity? Well, I think behind it all was certainly a, a drift away from the scriptural principles that they had been taught. They had had Paul as their teacher. They had had Apollos as their teacher. And they yet had drifted back to their old worldly ways of thinking. And this morning as we turn to chapter 6, that underlying issue of worldliness in their thinking uh, becomes even more apparent. You know, chapter 5 dealt with the importance of protecting the mor moral purity of the church by dealing with a sinful individual. But now in chapter six, Paul turns his attention to two other moral issues that had infected not just one individual in the church, but were problems that were widespread uh, within the church body. And so Paul makes the point here that not only do uh, church members need to confront an ongoing pattern of sin in the presence of one believer in that body, but they also must work to eradicate their own personal sin and to grow in personal holiness. So that's the emphasis of chapter 6. We could express the theme of chapter 6 like this, that every believer is called to glorify God by living in a manner that honors Christ. It's not complicated. It's a pretty simple theme. Every believer is called to glorify God by living in a manner that honors Christ. Well, as I mentioned, in chapter 6, Paul focuses on two sin issues uh, that had now become characteristic of the church in Corinth. And the first one is that members of the church were engaging in disputes against each other, and then they were taking these disputes to uh, judges who were pagans. They were taking them to uh, civil courts rather than uh, dealing with the church uh, or dealing it internally within the church. And then the second issue is that of sexual immorality, which perhaps isn't totally surprising. Remember, we've, we've talked about the culture in Corinth, that uh, it was sin city you know, in terms of 
the prevailing attitude towards sex. And so sexual immorality had really become a problem in Corinth. So let's first of all look at this issue of lawsuits uh, within the church. You'll notice that the approach Paul takes in confronting both issues in this chapter is to ask rhetorical questions. Uh, I forget what the number was. I went through the chapter and I counted up the number of questions in, in these 20 verses, and it's like 13 questions in 20 verses. Uh, it's, it's an approach designed to expose the Corinthians' shameful guilt by reminding them of what they know to be true. You'll, you'll hear this phrase, do you not know, do you not know? He repeats that over and over. So listen to Paul's rapid-fire series of questions starting at verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Nothing but questions, <laughs> one question after another. You know, you look at verse 1. Again, he says, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Uh, Paul knows full well the answer to his question here, doesn't he? So what's the issue that he's uncovered? Church members are doing what? So they're suing each other. They're taking each other to Roman courts, presided over by unbelieving judges, instead of dealing with the matter inside the church. You'll notice in verse 1, he uses that term uh, unrighteous, and uh, you know, referring to the pagan judges. And Paul is not saying that all secular judges are incapable of making a decision that is just and fair. He's not using the word unrighteous in the, in the sense that, well, these guys are just totally morally bankrupt and they, they can never come up with a just answer. No, instead, what he's doing here is, you'll notice that he's drawing a contrast between the unrighteous and the saints. The saints, literally holy ones, is a term that applies to every person who is in Christ. Believers are holy in that they've been set apart to God and are now clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So he's talking about the saints being those who are in Christ. And when he uses the term unrighteous, he just means, you know, those uh, who are not clothed with the righteousness of Christ. They're unbelievers. And so Paul uses that contrast to lead to the point that... Let me move on here. That believers are uniquely qualified to settle disputes between church members. And he begins by reminding them that believers will judge the world. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? You know, this verse may cause you to think, well, well wait a minute. Last week, didn't we read in chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, that believers are not to judge those outside the church, that judgment belongs to God and God alone? <laughs> well, that's absolutely true, but what Paul is talking about here is in the future. He's talking about in the millennium, and he's talking about when the saints, those who are in Christ, will reign and rule with Christ. 
And perhaps the clearest statements of this truth are in Daniel chapter 7 and in the book of Revelation. For the sake of time, let me just point out a couple of verses in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus, speaking to the church at Laodicea, says this. He says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So in the millennium, believers will rule with Christ, having the amazing privilege of sharing his throne. And then in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, we read this. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule with them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. So that's really an amazing thought, isn't it? And it's, and it's true <laughs> that the day is coming when all who are in Christ are going to share Christ's throne and are actually going to be involved in, in ruling over the nations and in judging the nations. And that's uh, what Paul is, is pointing to here. But Paul goes on to say that believers will judge angels. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Well, Scripture affirms that the Lord will indeed uh, judge fallen angels. The Lord himself will judge them. Uh, that's in Second Peter, and it's in Jude. But nothing is said about believers participating in that judgment. It's just perhaps they will, but it's not spelled out explicitly in Scripture. That word translated judge can also mean to rule or to govern. And so this verse may be saying that uh, believers will one day have authority over uh, holy angels, over righteous angels in some uh, respect. Well, here's John MacArthur's take on this point. He writes, One cannot be dogmatic, but I am inclined to think that glorified believers will help judge the fallen angels and exercise some rule over the holy angels. If Christ was exalted above all angels, that's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, if we are in him and are like him, and if we are to reign with him, it must be that somehow we will share in his authority. So apparently this is a point that uh, Paul had taught the Corinthians when he was there with them, uh, but it's not spelled out explicitly in Scripture. But he reminds them, do you not know, don't you remember, he's saying, uh, that I taught you that you would be uh, judging the angels. Well, taking verses 2 and 3 together, Paul is arguing that if believers will one day judge and rule over the nations and will rule over the angels with Christ, they can surely use God's standards in Scripture and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to settle disputes within the church now. Believers are qualified, is what he's saying. On the other hand, Paul argues that unbelievers are not qualified to handle internal church disputes. Look at verse 4. So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? This verse is a bit tricky to translate because it can be legitimately translated as either a question, as the New American Standard has it, or as a sarcastic command, which you'll find if you have a New American Standard, you'll find it uh, in a marginal note. 
you know, either way would be perfectly legitimate. If it's taken as a command, Paul would be telling them that even the least qualified believer, you know, take the least qualified person in the church and let them judge because they would do a better job than an unbeliever. So, you know, that's one possible meaning of what he's saying here. But the wording in the New American Standard seems to fit the context better, where Paul is criticizing their practice of going to pagan judges, uh, even though such judges uh, lack the qualifications to handle disputes uh, between believers. Unbelieving judges do not have the scriptures. Unbelieving judges uh, do not pray. Unbelieving judges do not have the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They are totally unqualified, and therefore, they are of no account within the church. Now, what Paul is not saying here, we need to, I think, be careful to point this out. He's not saying here that uh, secular courts have no place. You know, in, in Roman society, just as in our society today, there are certain legal matters that you have to take uh, before uh, the civil authorities. Uh, so he's not, he's not talking about that. You, and in fact, if you uh, remember from the book of Acts, uh, you know, what did Paul do when he was accused by the Jews? He appealed to Caesar. He exercised his rights as a Roman citizen, and he, he used the Roman legal system in order to make that appeal. So he's not saying here that, that all uh, civil courts are, are unnecessary or bad. He's not saying that at all. He's just saying that those kinds of judges don't have a place within the church, settling disputes within the church. So, in verses 2 to 4, Paul has argued that the practice of looking outside the church to handle internal disputes, it, it just doesn't make any sense at all. He then probes even more deeply as he exposes the Corinthians' worldly behavior. Listen to Paul's tone here as I read. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? You know, you look at that opening phrase of verse 5, what's Paul's assessment of this situation? It's shameful, isn't it? Yeah, he says, he says, I say this to your shame. Their behavior is absolutely shameful. You know, in the Gospel of John in chapter 13, what did Jesus say was the hallmark by which all men will know you're my disciples if, if you love one another? You know, how about Corinth? <laughs> was that happening there? No, you know, Paul asks a pointed question to reveal that uh, their conduct presents a terrible witness. Again, look at verses 5 and 6. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. So, is there nobody in the church at Corinth who's wise enough to settle disputes? What do you think? Of course there would be somebody there that, that could be able to do that. You know, clearly Paul is using sarcasm here. 
Remember in our introduction to this letter a few weeks ago, we read in Acts 18 of, of Paul being taken before uh, the Roman authorities because of his proclamation of the gospel. There were, there were Jews who were angered by what he was doing. And uh, so they took him before the judgment seat in Corinth. And do you remember where that judgment seat was located? Anybody got a good memory? It was in the Agora. It was in the marketplace. And that, that was kind of the, the common uh, way to, to set it up. You know, so, so these, these courts were very, very public. So, you know, what kind of impression of the church do you think unbelievers in Corinth were getting uh, when they were in the marketplace and then there was a case going on, you know, and, and here were a couple of uh, angry church members who were fighting with each other, uh, having disputes against one another, and they're coming before the judge. What kind of a witness is that? Not a good one. <laughs> Not a good one at all. By this all men will know you, you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, not only was it a terrible witness, but furthermore, the pursuit of these cases is a defeat from the start. Again, look at verse 7. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? You know, Paul's point here is that the person who files a lawsuit against a brother and then, and then feels compelled to take the case before unbelievers in order to get what he or she wants has already lost in God's sight. Instead of trusting God with the matter, he's being driven by sinful selfishness, uh, trying to take control of that matter in order to get uh, what he wants. So Paul argues here it's much better to just let it go. Again, listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Go to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You know, you look at, at, at Jesus' emphasis and you can see very clearly that the way of the Lord is the way of non-retaliation. Let the Lord deal with the matter, uh, Paul is arguing here. Just let it go. Then in the next verse, Paul makes it clear that these disputes were driven by sinful motives. In verse 8, he says, On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. <laughs> Boy, again, what a testimony within the church, what, what they're doing to each other. So among these believers, there was sin on both sides of the equation. The attempt to retaliate for wrongs done by a brother by going to unbelievers was sin. And it's also true that there really were believers guilty of wrongs perpetrated against one another, uh, along with believers defrauding each other. To engage in these sorts of behaviors is to be caught up in selfish human wisdom. It's the voice of the world saying, don't get mad, get even. And that's, that's kind of the mindset that they have uh, returned to. And the Corinthians were listening to that voice. Now, do you think the Corinthians had been taught that the essence of what God requires is to love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself? Do you think they were taught that? Yeah, of course they were. Paul had been there for a year and a half. 
then Apollos came. Yeah, of course, they, they knew that that was God's requirement. So the question is, well, what has happened uh, in this church? Again, what's going on is that they have set the word of God aside, and they've drifted back into the world's way of thinking. Paul is saying that their behavior, they're, they're starting uh, to look once again like the world. They have forgotten the things that they've been taught, and now they're kind of going back to the old and the familiar, and they're beginning to look like the world, act like the world. So in the next three verses, Paul turns his attention to the evidence of genuine saving faith. You'll notice that he begins by listing some of the marks of unbelief. Verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So here Paul assembles a list of the kinds of ongoing patterns of sin that characterize those who have no part in God's kingdom because they have no saving relationship with the king. And this is basically an expansion of the list that we saw last week uh, at the end of chapter 5. But now in this expanded list, he includes fornicators, that is those who are engaged in sexual activity outside of marriage, he mentions idolaters, that is, worshipers of false gods or people who have a false view of God. Adulterers, those who are married but unfaithful to their spouse. And then effeminate and homosexuals, that really covers uh, both sides of the homosexual relationship, uh, both the passive and active roles in that kind of relationship. He mentions thieves, those who take what doesn't belong to them. And then uh, covetous, uh, that's those who are filled with greed, and of course it's that greed that, that drives the theft. In fact, uh, covetousness is, is really behind all of these sins, uh, certainly in a sense. Drunkards, so anybody that's involved in substance abuse. Revilers, that's those who verbally destroy other people. And then swindlers, that is con artists and cheats. And it seems to me that this last item kind of strikes close to home regarding what Paul has been saying uh, the Corinthians are doing, uh, what he mentioned back in verse 8. So having reminded them of what the lifestyles look like for those who are not part of God's kingdom, Paul goes on to describe the reality of new life in Christ. Look at verse 11. Such were some of you but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So the sins in verses nine, to, uh, nine and 10 did indeed characterize some of the Corinthian uh, believers. This is what they looked like before they came to Christ. Such were some of you, but in Christ they've been made new. They've put on the righteousness of Christ and their behavior has changed. They've been washed, he says. That's an expression which uh, pictures regeneration as they uh, were brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. They were sanctified. That is, they were made holy, set apart by God because they had been clothed 
with a righteousness that wasn't their own. It was the righteousness of Christ. And they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, declared right with God because of the substitutionary death of Christ who made payment for their sins. And now <laughs> they are in the spirit of God. They have the spirit's indwelling presence. They've been made new, Paul declares. So what's his point? <laughs> well, go back to the opening question of verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, what Paul is saying is that though they are in Christ, they are acting like unbelievers. They are taking on these characteristics once again you know, in, this, in this list. And instead of focusing on the reality of what God has done for them in Christ, they're drifting back to their old ways, their old behaviors. They're forgetting the teachings from Scripture and from the Apostle Paul and are returning to the way that the world thinks, the way the world acts, the way the world lives. They're characterized by hostility toward one another, driven by covetousness and greed, and they want to come out on top. So when a disagreement surfaces, the typical response is, I'm going to sue you. <laughs> and so Paul's take on all this is, I say this to your shame. Every member of the church needs to pursue personal holiness, to reject the world's thinking, and to grow in Christ-likeness. That's what we're called to do. And a good place to begin is to stop the backbiting and to settle any disagreements with the assistance of others within the church, not in pagan courts. So that's issue number one. But there was a second issue to be dealt with, and that's the problem of sexual immorality in the church. You know, Paul opens this second topic with a statement that may have been a saying or a slogan within the Corinthian church, which although a correct statement had apparently become a misused truth. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Well, a central point in Paul's presentation of the gospel was that no one can be made right with God by performing works of the law. I mean, that is so abundantly plain in Paul's teaching. In Romans 3.20, he says, By works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In Galatians 5.1, he wrote, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. In Galatians 5.13, he wrote, for you were called to freedom, brethren. And so it could be concluded for the believer that all things are lawful for me. Believers are not saved by trying to earn some form of merit. They're not bound by the law. They're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. So genuine salvation is God's doing, and his forgiveness will never be revoked by any sin a believer may commit. Do you believe that? Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's a sense in which believers have freedom. And apparently the Corinthians were misusing this truth and concluding that sins that they committed in the body really didn't matter. It was all good. It was all covered. All things are lawful for me. 
And while the statement is true in one sense, Paul hastens to add the reality that not all things are profitable. Believers are called to grow in Christ-likeness and to bring glory to God. Believers are to look beyond themselves and their own desires and they're to serve one another. And so Paul is offering a challenge here to stop thinking uh, in the old manner and to think about what they're doing, think about what their uh, behavior is, the direction that they're going. Am I being motivated by love for God and his people? Or am I acting out of my selfish desire? That's kind of the, the, what Paul is, is pointing to here. Will my action bring glory to God and serve to advance the gospel? A moment ago, I quoted the first phrase of Galatians 5.13, but here's the verse in its entirety. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So that's the point that Paul is making here. All things may be lawful, but not all things are profitable. And then at the end of verse 12, Paul makes the point that sin is enslaving. He says, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. One of the chief characteristics of sin is that it is controlling. That's why believers are to wage war against it. It's why Paul expresses his resolve against it, saying, I will not be mastered by anything. And that must be our view toward sin as well. Listen to what uh, MacArthur writes regarding this point as it relates to sexual sin. MacArthur says this, he says, no sin is more enslaving than sexual sin. The more it is indulged, the more it controls the indulger. Often it begins with small indiscretions, which lead to greater ones and finally to flagrant vice. Like all other sins that are not resisted, sins of sex will grow and they eventually will corrupt and destroy not only the persons directly involved, but many innocent people besides. I think he's exactly right. And Paul was calling them to not let sin have mastery over them. Well, then in verse 13, Paul makes another statement that likely, again, was a common saying in Corinth one that the Corinthian believers were using to promote uh, a false analogy. Look at verse 13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. So the implication of this saying is that uh, meeting the body's needs was just a natural part of life. Food is made for the stomach, and the stomach is made for food. And so it is a natural part of life to satisfy one's hunger when the need arises. But evidently, the Corinthian believers were expanding on this analogy, arguing that in the same way, sex is for the body, and the body is for sex. This apparently was their justification for engaging in immoral sexual behavior, arguing that sex is just another normal bodily function. It's like eating food. And therefore, there's really no moral implications any more than there would be in eating a cheeseburger. But perhaps there's moral indication. <laughs> I'll leave that one for you to figure out. 
But that was kind of their, their, their thought process. But Paul points out that the analogy with food and stomach is true enough, but that the body's need for food is temporary since it applies only to life in this world now, but not in the life to come. And so he says, God will do away with both of them, with the food and with the stomach. But Paul goes on to argue that to, uh, by expanding the analogy to sex is really making a false equivalence. For the body is not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. That's the point that he's making here. Paul is saying here, uh, he's offering another analogy. And he's saying, here's an analogy for you, and this one is true. The body is made for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. That one you can take to the bank. Well, how can Paul say that the body is made for the Lord? Well, it's because of the truth of the resurrection. It stands as proof of Paul's analogy. Look at verse 14. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise up us up through his power. Now, he just argued that, that the stomach and food are temporary. They're going to go away. But you know what's not going to go away? Bodies. They're going to be raised up. Uh, to new life. Every person in Christ is connected with Christ and has been raised to new life in him. And that spiritual reality will one day become a physical reality when our bodies are raised to new life by his power. Later in this letter, Paul will remind the Corinthians with these words, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. So whereas food in the stomach are temporary and will be done away with, that's not the case with our bodies. They will be raised to new life. They will be transformed so that we can glorify and serve the Lord forever. So with that connection with Christ in mind, Paul goes, into, goes on to explain the implications of sexual sin. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Well, in the first half of verse 15, Paul begins outlining the implications of sexual sin by establishing the basis for his argument that the believer's body is a member of Christ. For every believer at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in his or her body. Each believer becomes uniquely joined to Christ and their body becomes part of his body, which is the church a subject that Paul will expand on later in this letter as he discusses spiritual gifts. We are all part of Christ's body. And with that basis in mind, Paul explains the realities of illicit sexual relationships. Notice that Paul uses a shocking rhetorical question. Again, look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. His answer to that question is emphatic. You know, what, a, what an awful picture this is. But again, keep in mind that 
the prevailing culture that was going on in Corinth. Corinth was the location of the Temple of Aphrodite. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago? And in the Temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, there were a thousand cult prostitutes, temple prostitutes. So having sex with temple prostitutes is what people in Corinth did. And evidently it was a practice that had crept back into the church. Shocking as that is. I mean, that's, that's kind of mind-blowing. And it was being justified by saying food for the stomach and the stomach for food, sex for the body and the body for sex. They argued that there is no spiritual issue here because these are just normal bodily functions. But in effect, Paul's response is, can't you see what you're doing? Verse 16, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. You know, sexual intimacy is a wonderful gift of God uh, given to be enjoyed exclusively by a man and woman bound together in the marriage relationship. Paul quotes here from Genesis 2.24 that in marriage, the two become one flesh. But to take that gift of becoming one and to totally pervert it by becoming one with a prostitute is unthinkable. (laughs) Do you not know this, Paul asks? And then he points to the reality for the believer in verse 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. The believer has been made one with Christ, and that connection with Christ is the reality. And that is why sexual sin is so awful and so completely inappropriate. It harms Christ's reputation because of the association. So here Paul has been talking about the specific sin of having relations with a prostitute, but the principle applies to any form of sexual immorality, whether to adultery or fornication or any form of sexual activity outside of marriage. And that also includes activities of the mind, such as pornography. You can think of anything that's under that umbrella is is taking that sin and uh, uh, associating it with Christ. So for the believer to engage in sexual immorality is to associate Christ with that sin because the believer is one, uh, is of one spirit with him. And that brings us to the bottom line. To avoid the trap of sexual sin. Verse 18, Paul gives the command to escape quickly because of the nature of sexual sin. Look at verse 18. Flee immorality. (laughs) You know, this two-word command kind of brings to mind uh, Joseph's reaction uh, in the book of Genesis when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. What did Joseph do? He ran. He couldn't get out of there fast enough. And that's exactly uh, what what Paul is, is saying here. It's exactly the kind of response we are to make when the temptation of sexual sin comes our way. He's saying, flee, get out of there, have nothing to do with it, get away from it. And then Paul goes on to explain why this is so essential. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Well, the precise meaning of this statement has been the subject of much debate among Bible scholars. Every other sin is outside the body, Paul says, but in what sense 
Is sexual sin more internal? How is it sinning against the body? I think once again, MacArthur provides some helpful comments. He writes, I believe Paul is saying that although sexual sin is not necessarily the worst sin, it is the most unique in its character. It rises from within the body bent on personal gratification. It drives like no other impulse, and when fulfilled, it affects the body like no other sin. It has a way of destroying a person that no other sin has. Because sexual intimacy is the deepest uniting of two persons, its misuse corrupts on the deepest human level. Again, I think he has expressed it really well. Well, Paul concludes this topic by describing three realities for every believer. The first reality is given in verse 19. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So the first one is that the body is God's temple. Once again, Paul challenges the Corinthians with a question. Of course, the Corinthians knew this to be true. They'd been taught that they, uh, their bodies were the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. They'd been well taught by Paul himself. But they'd not been living in a way that reflected this understanding. You know, it's an amazing thought, isn't it, that, to realize that if you are in Christ, right now where you sit, <laughs> the Holy Spirit is residing in you as the one who gave you new life in Christ, the one who is your comforter, the one who is your guide, the one who is your teacher, the one who is the seal and guarantee of your salvation. That's, that's amazing to think that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you right now. Well, knowing that to be true, does it make any sense to use your body for sinful purposes? Absolutely not. On the contrary, that thought should spur us on to pursue personal holiness. But even beyond that truth, Paul explains that as a believer, you are owned by another, bought with an unimaginable price. Again, uh, verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. You have been bought with a price. You know, what right do you and I have to do whatever we want, pursuing whatever selfish desires come to mind? None. The reality is that we've been purchased out of the slave market, no longer as slaves to sin, but now slaves to righteousness, as Paul put it in Romans 6.18. And what did it cost to purchase us? The butt of Christ, exactly. The apostle Peter writes, conduct yourselves in fear, in other words, in obedience, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In light of this reality, the only appropriate response to the temptation of sexual sin is, is to battle against it, to war against it, to fight against it, armed with the truth of Scripture and fighting in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, finally, Paul concludes with a command that reveals the ultimate purpose of the believer's body. 
It's to glorify God. Verse 20, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. We now belong to God. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ. Uh, We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Ephesians uh, 2.10. In doing so, we bring honor and glory to God. It's the very thing that we were created to do. And so that's really Paul's bottom line here is we've, we've been given bodies, but our bodies are now one with Christ. They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we need to glorify God in our bodies. That's what we are called to do. So that's chapter 6. Let's just spend a couple of minutes as we close here on some implications and applications. There's a bunch. um, (laughs) I've only got three, but boy, there could have been a lot more. But here's three to, to think about. First one, when the church looks a whole lot like the world, it is a terrible witness. I think you'll all acknowledge the the truth of that statement. You know, for that reason, the Apostle Paul wrote this to the church in Rome. Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's Romans 12.2. So the question is, you know, is there any aspect of your life where you look a lot more like the world than you do like Christ? Are you looking like those who don't know Christ as opposed to looking like a believer? You know, Paul is saying here, we need to stop being conformed. The idea there of that word is being squeezed into the world's mold. He's saying don't be uh, squeezed into that mold. Uh, Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, Some years ago, I was was reading a a book that uh, had an illustration in it of uh, kind of a desert landscape uh, where uh, rain wouldn't happen very often, and when it did, it would kind of, uh, you know, make these little ravines, you know, down, down the hillside. And the author was saying that our minds are like that, that, you know, we've, we've had lots of worldly exposure and worldly thinking, and our minds are used to going down these channels every, t- every time they go down the same channel. And the challenge for us as believers is to have our minds renewed and to start creating new channels so that when something comes up, when a temptation uh, hits us, we change our thinking and we start going down uh, another path, uh, the righteous path, the path of Scripture. And that leads us to the second one here, that every believer is called to pursue personal holiness. Familiar verse, having just studied 1 John, beloved, Now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when the Lord appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Again, this is is what we're called to do, to grow in Christ-likeness. It's not optional. This is what we are to do. This is Paul's argument in chapter 6. The Corinthians needed to change. We need to change. Uh, 
And then lastly, the pursuit of personal holiness involves rejecting worldly behavior and thinking and replacing it with God's truth. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul writes this. He says, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. There we, we, we come again with that. The problem is our thinking. We need to change our thinking and, and bring it into accord with what Scripture tells us. That you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So, the church in Corinth, <laughs> it's a church with problems. But their problems, yes, maybe the problems in chapter 6 are kind of extreme. We don't see these things happening around us in countryside, although there's probably things happening in this church that we're not aware of that if you were aware of it, uh, you would be greatly dismayed. But all of us are challenged here, I think, to uh, consider where we are just in, in terms of our own walk with the Lord and our own progress in growing in Christ-likeness. Uh, we need to, to war against whatever the sin issues are uh, that we are facing in our own lives. And we need to bring glory to God in our bodies. So with that, let me close us in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, how we thank you for the power of your word, which makes so abundantly clear uh, how much you hate sin and how destructive sin is and how controlling it is and how it destroys the witness of the church. Father, our desire is uh, to get rid of our sin. Our desire is to grow in Christ-likeness and to, to honor you, to please you in all that we're involved in. And so, Father, I pray that you would just, uh, by the work of your spirit, by the truth of scripture, that you would uh, help us to recognize when we are going down the wrong path, when we are guilty of worldly thinking, uh, that you would bring that to our attention and that you would uh, enable us to, to turn from it, to repent and to change our thought processes and get them in line with uh, the truth of what you have said in your word. Father, our desire is to live for you, to live in ways that honor you, glorify you, please you in every respect. And Father, we thank you uh, for the tools that you've given us to make that possible, uh, for uh, the scripture, for the presence of your spirit, and most of all, for uh, the new life that you've given us in Christ. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice that he made for us when we absolutely did not deserve it, but deserved just the opposite. Uh, Father, how can we thank you enough uh, for what you've done for us. And we can give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.